If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie show where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. We have many new listeners. So let me give you a short history of the show. When I first graduated from Syracuse University back in 1985, I was living back in my hometown of Croton on the Hudson, New York, and teaching public school in Danbury, Connecticut, which gave me about a 50-minute commute in the car. So I started listening to NPR, other stations. My dad was a Sing Sing prison guard, and he used to listen to a lot of talk radio coming out of New York. One of the shows that he listened to that uh, I grabbed onto was a show hosted by Art Rust Jr. He had a terrific voice and a sports talk show that covered all things New York sports. The Giants, the Jets, the Yankees, the Rangers, the Islands, the Knicks, and the Nets. It was a really good show. Art was an African-American, and I never knew this for a long time, and I think a lot of his audience did not know he was an African-American. Fast forward to my publication of my first book in 2008. It's a food history book, and it was a time when I had the opportunity through my publisher of getting out, and I was interviewed several times on stations or networks like NPR, and other ones. And so I was regularly going into studios to do these interviews. And I remember going into this one studio that NPR had booked for me. So they're located in DC and I'm here in New York. I go down to New York and I go into the station. I do this interview, you know, short interview. And when it's over, the engineer for the station, a guy that does all the, you know, the, the mixer board and all that kind of stuff, he says, wow, you really have a great voice for radio. And I kind of planted that in my head and that came up a couple times uh, as I did interviews and documentaries, some TV, some radio. People kept saying that, and it inspired me to want to do a show. Me and my wife came up to Babson College here in Massachusetts, and that's when I started to work on pitching a show. And I can tell you there was no success whatsoever. And it was right around the same time that someone introduced me to, to a podcast. And I started as an auditory learner, listening to a ton of podcasts, still listen to a ton of podcasts. I said, well, why don't you just do your own podcast? That way you don't have to answer to some station manager. You're you're not pressed to be able to find commercials to put on your show. Certainly that's a goal of mine to monetize the show, but it doesn't have to happen right away. And I have the ability to Decide what content I want, who I want on the show, don't want on the show. So that's how this show started. Now, some of the things that I have evolved into talking about are certainly the issue of school and sports as a former student athlete at a Division I level and now as a college professor, but also the financial part of this because I made a lot of stupid mistakes when I was still playing. And the amount of money I wasted, the number of credit cards I ran up, it was ridiculous. And I also 
got the undergraduate degree, associate's degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree, PhD. So I figured I'm pretty qualified to talk about paying for school. So that's one of the themes that we talk about is getting a debt-free degree. There's another theme that you'll hear on this show. Do you need the information or the degree? Well, why do I have a PhD? Because you cannot be a tenured professor at a college or university without a PhD. Otherwise, if I could have done the same gig without getting a PhD, I would have done it. I talk about mental health. Why? Because I'm a guy who has had ADHD for a long time. And I know what it was like to be a kid in a learning resource center and struggling with low self-esteem, struggling with depression, struggling with suicidal thoughts as a young guy coming up. So I talk about those things because I realized that unlike an, an injury like an ACL tear, when it comes to mental health, people don't want to talk about it. Parenting, a lot of the, my ideals, I wanted a show to be able to get it out. And by doing the, quote, Fred Opie show, I found a space to be able to do that. But I've also been sharing my work as a food historian. Some of the uh, materials that, that I have learned and researched and wrote about or done public lectures, but I'm making it available. And I'm excited about sharing that content with you. Today is an interview with women's lacrosse pioneer Jackie Pitts. We had a problem during the recording and the sound quality is not the greatest, but the content is really important. So I decided to share it anyway, because she has some extremely unique experiences that I certainly didn't know about. And I consider myself an historian of the game. So check it out. Our oral history with Jackie Pitts. Our guest today is a 1959 graduate of St. Lawrence University. Hall of Famer Jackie Pitts played club lacrosse for the Philadelphia Bandits and the Philadelphia Women's Lacrosse Association. She was a member of the U.S. Women's Team and U.S. Reserve Team from 1964 to 1974. She later served as a head coach of the women's squad from 1979 to 1987, winning the first winning the first World Cup in 1982. Pitt's lacrosse experience spans the entire spectrum of the sport. Player, coach, educator, camp director, administrator, and pioneer of women's lacrosse in other countries. She has largely been responsible for the growth of women's lacrosse in both Japan and Czechoslovakia. I was born in 37. I was introduced to lacrosse at Sanford School in 1953, which was a boarding school at that time. It was the only high school in Delaware to have a lacrosse team. So we played our high school game in Pennsylvania, in New Jersey, in Maryland, and in Washington, D.C. And they were all our away games. And most of our away games were away because uh, even though we play them twice frequently, the other team didn't want to drive that far. But we, <laughs> like the people in Washington, didn't want to go all the way up to Delaware to play a game. And there's plenty there, or Pennsylvania, and tons of private schools there. Was lacrosse, when you first started, largely a private school game for women? Uh, yes, it was. The first lacrosse team in Delaware. And that was in 46, I think. Around that time, they started playing lacrosse. First picked up a stick, I would have been 15. I had been playing at a public school, so I didn't know what this strange name was. In high school, 
at ninth grade, I played with the senior kids, and my recollection was is that I was pretty good. When I got to Sanford in 10th grade, I thought, I refuse to be on a JV team. Head of school, who was the lacrosse coach as well, lady, very good athlete, international athlete in field hockey. She, she had a made of stick with her two hands. I took it away from her, and it never dawned on me or her that when she handed it to me, it was when you're facing a person, it's going to be the opposite hand up. So she had her right hand up, as everyone did at that time. Everyone did it. And I picked it, and I took it, and I went home for spring break and thought, I'm going to throw it against the wall in a big old stone house, and then I have a wall that I'm going to just throw it in, and it's going to hit that wall. And uh, it was stone, so it would jump off the house at different ways. And I'd try to catch it and everything, and I went back to school, and we had two weeks two or three-week vacations then, I made the varsity team. This lacrosse, I, I just loved it from the moment. And people were laughing at me were using my left hand up. I tend to be somewhat ambidextrous anyway. I had spent two and a half weeks or so practicing while I would be way behind <laughs> trying to put my right hand up. So I played my whole career left-handed. Back then, it was unusual. What was it that made you a cut above? I was very, very quick. I was a shooter. I got to know every cross goalkeeper. I knew their weaknesses. I, I didn't just shoot. I would do things that would throw them off so the goalkeeper will move. I didn't just pop it in, no problem. One tournament, I think I had 18 goals. This is the Fred Opie Show. We'll be right back. Start with your gift. Understand and monetize it while serving others with it. My lacrosse memoir of having ADHD and just how hard school was for me it was never easy. Read a sample chapter of Start With Your Gift on my website, fredopi.com. Welcome back to this edition of The Fred Opie Show, unpacking history to positively impact the future. You decide that you want to go to college. Where did you go to school and why did you choose that school? Well, in those days, the kids didn't choose a school, really. The teacher, the parents did. So I just went where my parents told me to go, which was St. Lawrence University. One of the board of trustees at St. Lawrence talked my parents into sending me there. A little bit about the lacrosse tradition at St. Lawrence that you found when you got there. There was none. So during the summers, every summer I went to um, the very best hockey and lacrosse camp lady named Maggie Boyd, the first one who just continued to come and come and come. She was phenomenal. For those four years, I went summers. I went and did that. When I came back, one of the people who was an umpire at the Sanford School when I was playing, she saw me coaching. I was a high school math teacher. She said, Jackie, why aren't you up there practicing with the team? And she said, you were so good better get up there so I did you're at St. Lawrence for four years there is no lacrosse but there's this camp you go to every year what was the name of the camp and this was a camp where you worked or you were a camper while you were in college at the end of a a regular summer camp and then there were two weeks at the end of the summer that were just talking in lacrosse college kids high school kids or both 
I don't know. I think it's both. I think it's both. Meerstead, it was called. Maine, I think. There were ones in the Poconos, too. But I wanted to have this coat. Maggie Boyd, one of Britain's very top players. Women's lacrosse in England, is it the hotbed for lacrosse globally for women? Well, women's lacrosse went to um, St. Andrews first. One of the queens saw it and said, we, we have to have this. Women's lacrosse got, got in their private schools, and then they started sending people over to the States, and the Roots gave them a little holiday in the States, and and they were able to pursue development of their sport. Women's lacrosse started here in the United States. It went to an expedition game played at St. Andrews. The Queen saw it and then insisted on it becoming part of the British sports environment. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. Graduate from St. Lawrence. So you go back to, to the Sanford School and you're teaching... High school math. And, and you're coaching what sports? Field hockey. Basketball, lacrosse. How did you get involved in uh, becoming a player for the U.S. national team? Well, this umpire, she took me up to the first practice. Come on, I'll take you up there. So she took me up, even though I hadn't played at all during, except the two weeks during the summer to stay in it. I graduated in '59. 60 and 61, I played with the Philadelphia Springville Lacrosse Association, which was the strongest one. Uh, we had the best records. I mean, there every so often, maybe once every six years, someone would beat us or something. But. How many teams were in that club league, and where were those teams located? There was a Philadelphia Lacrosse Association. On Saturdays, it was just fun playing games, or and Sundays was just for the people who wanted to go on and play internationally. There were probably three teams for that out of Philly. Were there teams in Baltimore and Long Island, some of the traditional hotbeds? We call them South uh, Maryland. They had lacrosse playing for games, both in lacrosse and field hockey. And Long Island had a little bit. Philadelphia had the biggest. Uh, Boston was the second biggest. You all would travel to play teams in Maryland, New York, and Boston? We played in Philadelphia to learn to get better. But then we did play the other teams, and then we had a play day, actually a weekend, in Boston. And we'd all go here and there, and we had them in different places. Did most of them have a college lacrosse experience? There was no one else that had played. I began playing in Philadelphia in 60 and 61. I graduated from college at 59. 60, 61, I was playing in Philadelphia in the spring. 62, 63, just two years later, out of that group, we then had a big tournament at the end of the season with all this, and it would move around from place to place by the year. In 62 and 63, I already made the U.S. Reserve team. And then 64, 65, 66, I was on the first team. I went on tours and everything overseas. 67 and 68, my parents were ill, being born in 1895 uh, mm-hmm. with my parents. And I was also president of the U.S., I think, at that time. 
And I was also teaching and coaching after school. My play went down, so some people said, "Oh, you really had it. You were good then." I I didn't say anything to anyone. I just thought, "Hmm, <laughs> I'm going to be back." <laughs> so I back. 69, 70, 71, 72, 73. I was high scorer for America, I think for two of those years. I went on, 64, I went on the U.S. team tour to England, selected England, Scotland, and Ireland, Wales. Ireland was playing then. And then 69, I toured as the first home uh, to Australia. In 70, I went back to England, Scotland, tour and then I started doing other things like coaching administratively president of the Philadelphia Lacrosse Association and then I was president of the United States Lacrosse Association and then I became the third I think it was third or fourth president of the International Association We're going to take a commercial break this is The Fred Opie Show. We'll be right back. Visit our website at fredopie.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. I live by the mantras, agents of positive change focus their energy on learning. Learners are earners, and we are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Purchase a great book, audiobook, or CD during our fantastic $10.99 or less limited time offer sale we have slashed the price on my Zona Hurston biography and on Southern food and civil rights, the history of the role of food and U.S. movements from the Great Depression to Occupy Wall Street. Cook and bake the related historic recipes in the pages of these riveting food history books. Read my sports autobiography and self-improvement book, Start With Your Gift, and my latest book, Super 7, and learn how to be more creative and productive. These and other great books, audiobooks, and CDs all for ten ninety nine or less while supplies last. And here's some even better news. If you spend $30 or more, we're going to give you a free CD and ship your order for free. All orders will ship in 48 hours because we want you to get these resources as soon as possible. Go to our online store at fredopiespeaks.com and order now. Be a difference maker. Use your smartphone or computer and purchase two or more paperback copies. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. Welcome back to this edition of The Fred Opie Show, unpacking history to positively impact the future. What role did class play in lacrosse among women? It was mostly private school kids. And it wasn't that we didn't want to exclude them. The schools weren't putting it in their programs. The U.S. lacrosse has always worked hard to increase it, and uh, in more recent days, it's been marvelous uh, encouraging other people. But, but it was really the schools themselves that held it back. I'm sure that was the case. One of the great players that's in the Hall of Fame is Tina Sloan Green. Did you see African Americans in that Philadelphia Women's Club program? That was very unusual. Tina Sloan was... Um, black girl. She and I played together for a long time. When you all would go touring, explain what that meant. Before we were, before we became an international association, England would call us, invite us over, and we'd come over. And we were selected every year when the invitation came, and it would be 
uh, up to the U.S. to say which girls go. Actually, Australia played before World War II, but because of the war, they were a long time getting back after World War II. It would be only one country at a time. And then we would be stay there for, I think one of my tours was eight weeks. And after that, it was six weeks. Because some people, especially some of the girls who were married, because they were young and they wanted to get back to their husband, etc. So they put out a little questionnaire. And they said, how long do you think the cross tour should be? Everyone put down six weeks or four weeks. Then we had our first World Cup was England, Scotland, Wales, USA, Australia, Canada, and I think maybe one more. And where was that held at? England. How did you all pay for this? Where did you stay? And how did you eat? Uh, we stayed in homes. Uh, maybe the first night on arrival we'd be in a hotel, but not always. Like our tour to England, we went, went up to Scotland, and then we went to Ireland, and then we went to Wales. And so they would feed us. There was one tour that gave us two houses, and we, because, because it was a long tour, and we could have a little break for three days, I think. And we would go out and buy our own food and everything. And the funniest thing was, everyone was craving peanut butter because England didn't have peanut butter. Were most of the women that were toured with you in those early days, were most of them unmarried without children? Well, we had, I would say, it was probably about 50-50, but not in those two categories. A rare one would have a child. About half the team was married, and half the team was not married. Enid Russell, I remember, she had a child. The average age? Defense was older average age than the attack. Still in college or just out of college? Most of them were just out, out of college, maybe 25. I was the oldest as a player most of the time. People were playing from 21 to 30? Or? I think I was the only one player. There might have been one other. Tell me about the selection process. This was a, a yearly process. Was it by committee? Were there tryouts? At the end of the season, going toward June, it wasn't a tryout for the team, but it was a tryout for the team. It was for everybody on the, say, two top teams in Boston, three top teams in Philadelphia, two in Maryland. Everyone played each of, each of the other teams. Did you have a selection committee that walked around and watched the games? Oh, yes. Okay. Very official. Well, they would name a team, and then after that, they would put their heads together and name the touring team out of that group. How old were you when you transitioned from player to just strictly a coach? I guess I was in my 30s. Sometimes the goalkeepers were older. This is the Fred Opie Show. We'll be right back. Our scripture of the day is Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. Shirley Chisholm said, When I die, I don't want to be remembered as the first woman who happened to be black to make a bid for the presidency. I want to be remembered as a woman who fought for change in the 20th century. 
That's what I want. We're back. A hero, a hardship, and a highlight you've had across your lacrosse journey. I would say the hero would have to be um, Maggie Ward. The woman from England. She did the most to uh, to get lacrosse started and, and, and kept coming back year after year and always positive. She was a player as well herself. A hardship? I don't think I've ever had a hardship about anything. And the highlight, that's difficult. It could be the international travel in, in terms of playing. First World Cup, international connections I made. Japan was marvelous to me. Japan had boys lacrosse. It was uh, John Hopkins. Coach. Bob Scott? Yes. It was he that got things started over there, etc. Well, Japan did not have team sports for girls. They had tennis. They had golf. They had things like that, but no team sports. Six girls, I think it was. They wanted to play. And so Scott brought over one of his coaches. She didn't want to go back. I was president of the U.S. lacrosse at that time, I think. And I was called if I could give him 10 names of people that would be good. And so I gave him 10 names. He said, well, would you consider it? And I said, sure. He said, you're hired. They paid my airfare, but I went over and coached. And then I had the jockey camps, they were called. Oh, I started out with 16 lacrosse players, and then we had to pull in some people we'd never played before to practice or something, and and we just did a little bit here and there. And I went back, I don't know, eight times, I think. It grew until we had camp, like 70 people. So then I had to bring more coaches over with me. And then I brought a, uh, an umpire with me to teach him umpiring, and et cetera. I was also in Cuba. I had been to Cuba before when uh, just, just before Castro took over. I think I've been there three times now. The way I got in was going through one of the international associations that was on good terms with Cuba. I brought lacrosse sticks, told the association what I was doing, and the kids were so excited, and the coaches were so excited, et cetera, et cetera. It was more than one day. I brought the lacrosse sticks and bowls. They asked me to come indoors, so I said, well, I'll leave them outdoors. When I came back, all the sticks were gone, and they were already out there playing, throwing the ball and picking it up. It was mostly boys. Can you tell me a little bit about the, what you did in terms of helping lacrosse in Czechoslovakia? It was mainly guys, and my first trip there, they were just marvelous, and it was also, I think I went there three times total. Jackie, mm-hmm. I want you to write a imaginary book of success. I define success as having the biggest possible positive impact you can on the world around you. If you were to write a book of success, what would you call three of the chapter titles? Always being positive. Even when something negative happens, being gracious in a humble way, even though... We may live in a, in a small world, somehow make it better. Well, thank you. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com. 
as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show. If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. My wife, Dr. Tina Opie, worked as a management consultant before earning her Ph.D. at NYU Stern School of Business and becoming a tenured faculty member at Babson College. She has worked with the NFL, UBS, American Express, and Hulu to help their organizations do the hard work of becoming more inclusive. Tina Opie's consulting group can help your organization develop a strategy for elevating women and people from different racial ethnic backgrounds to leadership positions. Tina's work on inclusion, appearance policies, authenticity, and or shared sisterhood will make a positive difference in your organization. Contact Tina at Opie Consulting Group, LLC, at gmail.com. That's Opie Consulting Group, LLC, at gmail.com.